0: Kia ora Tour. Welcome to The Hoon. where co-host Peter Bale and I go around the week's news in geopolitics and Aotearoa's political economy, with a whole bunch of experts, academics and politicians, all to understand our worlds better and have some fun. Tēnā katoa. Everyone, welcome to The Hoon for Friday the 28th of April. I'm Bernard Hickey and joining me from Oslo is co-host Peter Bale. Peter, great to see you. Bernard, it's very good to see you too, Tug. You've lost me. Well, hello. Oh, Tug. Oh, of course. From Oslo, of course. Yes. Took me yes. a while to get that. How warm is it in Oslo right now?
1: It's minus one, but I've just <laughs> got up. It was snowing when I arrived on Wednesday. And so I was extremely glad that I bought a puffer jacket after our experience in Perugia the other day. So, you know, I'm just going around collecting better better layers for wherever I am.
0: Yeah. Last week, we had this amazing scene behind you in Perugia where you're attending the journalism conference. What takes you to Oslo?
1: Uh, well, I had dinner with um, New Zealand's leading um, epidemiologist last night, uh, Michael Baker, believe it or not. Ah. And his family. That, that isn't why I'm here, but it is a weird It is a weird. Oh, lovely. coincidence that he was here and our friend Patrick told me he was here, so I took him and his wife oh. to dinner last night, which was what had to do with it, which was very nice. Uh, unbelievably expensive, but very nice. Because I think when we get to Max Rashbrook, we can start comparing the levels of taxation uh, in New Zealand against Oslo. Yes. Because I'm testing that theory that I've long had, Bernard, but... Um, That New Zealanders, not unlike the English, want a Scandinavian standard of living with American levels of taxation.
0: (laughs) That's exactly the problem. Magical thinking rules, okay. Uh, uh, Yeah, and I can tell you here
1: they've they've definitely got Scandinavian levels of taxes and Scandinavian levels of education, of um,
0: life. Yeah. um, No, Norway's a really interesting uh, comparison because it's about the same population. It's also long and skinny and does a lot of Uh, hydroelectric power but the the main advantage they have is that they have uh, real oil as opposed to uh, white oil
1: they're also prepared to go and get it as well which we are no longer prepared to go and get and of course they have i think it's the second largest is it investment uh, sovereign fund in the world yeah you know, And they put a shitload of money into that for future generations. But it is, it is funny because I was talking to a number of specialists in industries other than media, although I'm going to see some media people today. And the long and skinny thing, it has a huge effect on distribution of medical care, where you can see specialists, all, all sorts of things. And of course, it is about five and a half million people.
0: Yeah, it's about the same size. It is a very
1: interesting comparison, as, mm. as is Denmark, which is a little, a little larger in population terms, I believe.
0: Yeah, and it's one of those places that's on the edge of big things. That always has to think about what the neighbours think. And uh, again, I'd especially reco- the
1: Russians, I think, Bernard.
0: Ah, yeah. Well, I, again, I'd recommend my favourite uh, Scandi noir political drama, which is Occupied.
1: That's why I'm here. I actually, I actually had to come ashore in a in a wetsuit and which was and <laughs> in a, in a, in a dinghy, and uh, I've got my escape plan, which is you know just to, to, to swim to the pharaohs.
0: Ah, yeah, that's cold. Now, that, that, mm. you really need some rubber there. Mm. That's, uh, that's yeah. good. But I am an
1: international man of mystery, as you know, so yeah. that's, that's good. <laughs> You've got fine. the
0: black shirt on. I was sort of expecting the a martini, shaken, not stirred. Have you got a martini there? No, it's actually just a plain old gin and tonic. Oh, yeah.
1: Well, yeah. I mean, I think, I think if I have a gin and tonic at seven in the morning, then I've got problems. And, our, and we yeah. have to have an intervention from our producer, Simon.
0: Yeah, no, it's, it's lovely to have Simon on. He's actually in, in Germany today. We're going to go right around the world. We've got uh, four guests on today, starting with Robert Patman from 510 or so till 520. Then we speak to Max Rashbrook, the uh, academic. And analyst who's been looking. What is at- Max?
1: Yes, what is Max? Yeah, we, you start to look. You know, Max Rashbrook, a- academic and analyst. There we go.
0: Yeah, yeah. No, he's written books about wealth, and he works uh, with Victoria University, and is an excellent observer of what's happening with stats around wealth and income. So this week's mm-hmm. report's going to be great. Then from five thirty to five forty, we speak to Nick. Goodall from Core cool Logic. He is uh, the head of research there, and will be able to tell us a lot more about what's happening with the housing market, and in particular what's going on with the Reserve Bank and the LVRs, and how this week was the week that the government put a floor under the housing market, mm. just in time maybe for the election. We'll see.
1: <laughs> I noticed also in the I think it was the Herald today that Rod Duke from Briscoe was complaining about being portrayed as a criminal by the government.
0: (laughs) Poor Rod. Mm. Hopefully he's now able to sleep at night on his helicopter pad in Hoon Bay.
1: Yeah, well, actually, lately he's been using, or he or one of his neighbours has been using
0: helicopters a lot, I can tell you. Mm. Uh, And then at uh, 5.40 or so, we'll speak to Josie Pagani, who produced... A column today in the last edition of the Dominion Post, mm-hmm. which is about to become the Post, and
1: which, if you think about it, is, is almost as redundant as Dominion. But anyway, yeah, yeah. And you're a former employee of the uh, having, what was the Evening Post? Having worked at the Evening Post it was very similar to my job at Reuters, feeding the pigeons on the roof. It was uh, bringing fresh cigarettes to the printers in the back of the place in Willis Street. Yeah, and learning to make paper printers' hats.
0: Well, it's obviously um, paid off. All of that extra it has, work,
1: absolutely, yeah, yeah.
0: And we'll also, again, keeping an eye on the media scene with Fox News's fallout from having to pay seven hundred and eighty-seven million US dollars to Dominion, with Tucker Carlson being unceremoniously dumped uh, this this week, and also Buzzfeed News uh, being shut down.
1: But, well, that was last week. But what, what about Bernard Hugh Grant saying that his house was burgled by the Sun? And I think, you know, the other, the focus of the whole Murdoch thing is going to move this week or has moved this week to some extent to London because you've got mm. Prince Harry and Hugh Grant in cahoots. So it is, it is like a sort of Christmas love actually episode. And, uh, you know, it's potentially extremely damaging for News Corp in, in the UK. Everybody's coming for Rupert at the moment. But, you know, because we're on the hoon, we just stay on all the world affairs. And we've got Professor Patman there who's coming to us live from downtown Khartoum. Or as we call it, Dunedin.
2: (laughs) Charts will be a fine thing.
1: Lovely to see you, Robert.
2: It's great to see you, Bernard. Great to see you, Peter. I think you're in Oslo, Peter.
1: I am in Oslo. And I was just saying, I had dinner last night with um, another Hoon guest, Michael Baker, the well-known epidemiologist. Oh, that was nice. We were here getting our our, um, Bill Gates chips checked out. So how's Oslo? Cold, very beautiful, highly taxed. I was walking around the waterfront yesterday and thinking that it could be Wellington, but there's no sewage running down the, um, down the streets. And the harbour is rather more confidently sort of architected than Wellington would be, unfortunately.
0: So, Peter, you've been uh, busy uh, producing your weekly uh, World Affairs bulletin for the spinoff and focused to start with on Sudan, which, you know... It doesn't get a lot of airtime here, but I think it's a, it's a big deal. So give, give us an update on what's happening there. Yeah, well, it's, it,
1: the thing that keeps striking me with Sudan, and I, I do know, in fact, I have some Sudanese friends who are trapped there at the moment, or English friends from Sudan who are trapped there, and it's one of those countries that's just been unbelievably badly governed since the end of the British colonial era in, I think, 1946. And you've got these two warlords essentially fighting each other, but there's all manner of other interfering elements in there. And the Wagner Group is in there. Prigozhin is, you know, exploiting the gold reserves in Sudan. China has an interest, but it's, of course, not a military interest. You know, China is the main customer for Sudanese oil. And Saudi Arabia has been um, investing very heavily in Sudan. You know, it's an important kind of neighboring country across the Red Sea. But it's really just two men who are prepared to go to war with each other and tear each other apart in downtown Khartoum. It's a shocking idea, really, that we're still in that era of strongmen dictators tearing up their own countries in Africa.
0: Robert, is there is there much chance that this um, spills over into the rest of the region? Sometimes these things go wide? I think there's
2: every chance, Bernard. As Peter just indicated, there's a lot of external actors deeply interested and involved in Sudan. Uh, Sudan is an important country. It's on the in the Horn of Africa. It's uh, has the Nile River flowing through it, which is shared with uh, Ethiopia and uh, Egypt. And, of course, one of the actors is in uh, Ethiopia's building, a massive dam at the moment, which has alarmed its neighbours. Yeah, uh, Peter went through some of the groups involved, so I won't repeat that. But I do think one of the implications of this crisis and perhaps why we're seeing the opportunity for strongmen leaderships to slug it out for power at the expense of civilians, more than 500 civilians now dead. One of the opportunities is the sheer impotence of the UN Security Council. Mm. And the uh, what we notice here is that uh, you have to have some sympathy for the UN's Secretary General, uh, Mr. Guterres, who sent an envoy there. But all he can do is basically appeal for the both sides to embrace a ceasefire. It took the US and the Saudis to put in place a shaky ceasefire for 72 hours, but that was simply designed to enable the foreign embassies to pull out, which is a, you know, what a sad commentary that is. I mean, many Sudanese people, you know, Peter, you may be able to sort of confirm this with contacts there, basically feel they've been abandoned by the world uh, as violence (laughs) emanates around them. Particularly uh, the Brits,
1: I mean, yeah.
2: So, but once again, no, no one on the Security Council, at least not Russia or China, is going to say, let's stop this nonsense immediately. Let's make sure there's a strong peace enforcement uh, body in place or group uh, to make sure that no civilians are harmed because they have agendas. Uh, Pregoshin and the Wagner Group, they basically are linked to a a paramilitary group led by General de who has links with Defer and the Defer region. And anyway... The, the paramilitary group have been involved with Prish Goshin's people in illegal gold mining operations. So, you know, in a sense, there's criminality. Uh, there's also power play. The Russians don't have any interest, nor do the Chinese, in a peaceful democratic transition, because in a sense, they would see oh. that as Western dominated. So, yeah, it, it, it to me, this crisis highlights once again... That the body that set up the UN Security Council as the first port of call in such situations is just incapable of doing other than, you know, agreeing to call for ceasefires. That's all it can do. It can't take any action, and I think that's very sad. And coming back to Peter's point, while we have a dysfunctional and impotent UN Security Council, we're going to get more and more sedans.
0: Yeah, and uh, China as well is choosing to flex its muscles in part because of the vacuum created by the failure of the UN with a call from uh, Xi Jinping to Vladimir Zelensky uh, this week, um, calling on the Ukrainians to do a deal with the Russians. What did you make of that? I, I think Mr. Zelensky, who's
2: a shrewd politician, I believe, was very courteous towards the Chinese and said how much he appreciated their efforts He's looking every attempt to drive a wedge between the Russians and the Chinese, which is not difficult, quite frankly, given that the Chinese blasted, apparently in the conversation with Zelensky, any unacceptable use of nuclear weapons in that conflict. So, hmm. you know, they've also, the Chinese apparently have also extended non-military aid to Ukraine. So some interesting really? things going on there. I think the Chinese quite privately, many of them are quite realistic about the looming problems facing Putin in Ukraine. And um, yeah, I I don't think the initiative is going to go too far, but you've got to look at it from the Chinese point of view. The peace initiative, Bernard, may help the Chinese position themselves in the event of Mr. Putin being defeated. They will not lose a connection with the region. And uh, in a Mm -hmm. sense, they're trying to rehabilitate, rehabilitate themselves. They're trying to play it both ways. They're trying to indicate to Putin they're on his side, but they're also indicating to the Ukrainians that they've got no particular squabble with them. But of course, not many Ukrainians wouldn't see it that way. But uh, I think this is a manoeuvre for the future dynamics of Chinese diplomacy as opposed to solving a particular problem at this time.
1: It's interesting that he should called Zelensky this in the same week when the uh, uh, Chinese ambassador to Paris made these rather extraordinary remarks that most of the former Soviet satellite states don't really deserve to be own countries and he was talking about you know latvia lithuania and that seemed like a rather extraordinary thing from which the chinese have been kind of resiling since then yes that
2: was extraordinary i agree peter but it does probably i think there are real divisions in the chinese leadership and i think the ukraine conflict has highlighted what i call the hardliners who do tend to support putin and believe that he's justified in some of his ambitions for the region and those more moderate elements in the chinese leadership who believe that she's current stance is not doing China any favors internationally.
0: Yeah, interesting to see from Honolulu this week the head of New Zealand's large navy making some fairly aggressive comments about China. We had the um, the admiral, the rear admiral, um, say that China was an increasingly coercive state was the line in a speech he gave at an NZAC day uh, event with U.S. military, Rear Admiral David Proctor. What did you make of of this, Robert? It was quite um,
2: aggressive language. It was quite aggressive language, but two things went through my mind. Firstly, it's no secret that in terms of New Zealand's military expenditure, the Navy have not received enough resources. I know we've discussed this before, but it's a big point. New Zealand has one of the largest exclusive economic zones in the world to look after. And I think uh, Admiral Proctor is conveying the message that China's burgeoning middle class will need resources, perhaps from uh, our, not necessarily our uh, exclusive economic zone, but in close proximity. And New Zealand does need to have the capabilities to deal with that. And I, I think that was the subliminal thrust behind the message that we need to beef up our maritime security. And he was also giving, I mean, by giving quite a tough interpretation of Chinese intentions, I think was not doing his chances any harm in trying to win resources within the New Zealand government.
0: That's right. Cause, cause we've got a defense review um, coming up, a fresh one and has come hard on the heels of a, of a big defense review in Australia. Which again uh, was all about China without actually using the word China <laughs> in the in the review. Yeah, and uh, also we've got a visit from Joe Biden to Australia uh, coming in the next couple of weeks, which will refocus attention on the whole area.
2: Yes, and uh, I, I think Australian and US relations are very close. And uh, yeah, uh, Mr. Biden, this AUKUS initiative is a big deal. Uh, I've been following the debates within Australia and. Uh, of course, the former Prime Minister Paul Keating is very scathing about it, but I think he's a bit of a lone voice at the moment. But the signs are that he may begin to get some traction when the bill is presented ah. for Australia's participation in AUKUS, which will be anywhere between two hundred sixty-eight billion and three hundred sixty-eight billion for probably a maximum of ten nuclear-powered submarines. So, and that's over thirty years. So, uh, of course, Keating's making great play with this by saying that that's just. Not credible. You you know, if you're going to defend a land mass as big as Australia, you're going to need more than uh, uh, three nuclear power submarines by 2032. So we, it's an interesting debate unfolding.
0: And I'm guessing that nuclear-powered submarines are the sort of the highest and most expensive level of technology that makes, um, you know, building a rail line look like a simple thing.
1: Jesus, are you suggesting we're going to be? Getting... Yeah, I don't think we'll be going nuclear anytime soon. But...
0: No, no.
1: Nuclear powered or nuclear armed.
0: No.
2: But we are, apparently, we are exploring discussions with the AUKUS leaders whether we should be a member, which mm. is. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I think this, I personally feel this is potentially a momentous decision for New Zealand's government. They need to get it right because uh, most of the ASEAN states and most of the Pacific Island states have been extremely critical of the AUKUS development, not least because it seems to break the non proliferation treaty. Mm of uh, 1968, which was subsequently you know, extended in the mid-90s. Namely, it's illegal yeah. for the five nuclear weapons countries which are recognised to have nuclear weapons under the treaty to transfer nuclear technology to a non-nuclear state such as Australia. So, you know, um, I know Mr. Little said, the Defence Minister, that our possible participation wouldn't compromise our non-nuclear security credentials... You can assert that, but you can't make others believe it. So, in a sense, it is the external perceptions. I, I personally don't think we can have our cake and eat it on that front. I think if we became a partial member of AUKUS, we would be, uh, first of all, there'd be doubts about the the principled, independent nature of our foreign policy, and secondly, people might question how committed are we to a nuclear-free world.
0: Robert, thank you very much. Lovely to have you on from from Dunedin. And uh, yeah, it's a new perspective on it because essentially, uh, you know, we came up with a nuclear-free policy all about stopping nuclear in the Pacific. And yet we seem quite relaxed about uh, joining up with a partnership that's going to put potentially 10 nuclear submarines in the Pacific. So. We'll see. we'll see how that works out. Time now for uh, Max Rashbrook. Max, thank you very much, Max, for joining us from, from Wellington. Lovely to see you again. Unfortunately, I, I spied you across the briefing room on Wednesday in uh, Wellington when you were there to absorb the hundreds of pages of IRD and Treasury reports. Uh, lovely to, to see you and welcome into the Hoon. Thank you very much. I wondered, Max, what did you make of the IRD's report that showed 311 of New Zealand's richest families had assets at worth $85 billion, or in essence, a quarter of a billion per family on average, and that uh, in 2020-2021, uh, they had an effective tax rate, taking into account the growth of their wealth, of Uh, just on 9%, when uh, most other people, um, well, when I say most, those in the middle of the income spectrum, let's say someone earning $80,000 a year and paying PAYE, their effective tax rate after paying for GST and the likes was around 30%. What did you make of this report? Well, you could say on on
3: one level that it's not hugely surprising. I mean, we've we've long suspected that If you're right at the upper end of the scale, you've got all sorts of options for minimising the tax you pay. But I do think there is still something shocking about the extent of the inequality. You know, there's that disparity you just mentioned, but also, you know, that effective tax rate for the wealthiest New Zealanders of about 9% is less than someone pays on the minimum wage, you know, less than an aged care worker, less than a supermarket cashier. I mean, I I think that's really shocking. And you know it's the culmination of years of work that Inland Revenue have been doing, dating back to at least 2015 with their high worth individuals unit. You know, trying to get a real handle on what's going on at the upper end. That work has been turbocharged by uh, David Parker, the Revenue Minister, who's you know a huge enthusiast of Thomas Piketty and you know clearly an advocate of a capital gains tax in some form. Now, you know, whether any sort of policy change happens is, is another question. But what this report has really done is it's kind of pulled away the veil of secrecy. It's shown us, I mean, to a, to a pretty high degree of precision, you know, who the wealthy are, how much wealth they have, how much income they earn every year, you know, as long as if, if you include their unrealised capital gains and just how little tax they pay. And I
0: think that is going to change the
3: debates from here on and about taxation.
0: Yeah, because the framing of the debate around capital gains tax and wealth taxes has been very much about the middle of the income spectrum who own their own home, and that if somehow there was a wealth tax or a capital gains tax, they would be the ones who were hit the hardest, and therefore they would be the ones who'd vote the most against it. But this framing, 311 families, quarter of a billion dollars of wealth per family, really says, hey, um, it's not so much about the middle, let's have a look at the top. And also just blows away this myth that, you know, we're somehow an equal country and that we don't have the same sort of extraordinarily rich people that, you know, you see in the United States or Switzerland or wherever.
3: Exactly, exactly. And I think it's pretty striking you know, you. I mean, on both sides of what you've just said, you know, you had. I think it was Rod Duke come out, you know, in the press and say he's not a criminal. Well, yeah, well, exactly. You know, <laughs> you know um, sort of saying, oh, he's been made to sound like a criminal, and then and then pushing this line that, oh, well, if you you know, if we had a capital gains tax, it wouldn't just be the wealthy that'd be hit, be you know, the hardworking middle classes. But, yeah, like you say, and what this report shows is that a huge amount of the capital gains are concentrated right at the, the top end amongst the mm. 0.01%. And we know from previous work anyway that, you know, the top 10 or 20% in every country where there's a capital gains tax pay the vast majority of it, you know, the absolutely the vast majority. And it really is striking that we don't have a capital gains tax or something like that. I mean, I just happened um yesterday to speak to one of uh, New Zealand's wealthiest people at uh, at an event I happened to be at. And, you know, after a bit of a sort of defence of the current system, they said, oh, look, but, you know, actually, I'll be pretty relaxed about a capital gains tax. All my business friends from overseas just cannot believe that we don't have one here.
0: Mm. Yeah, yeah, it's quite a thing. But the reactions from the politicians David Parker was very careful to say, you know, this is above my pay grade and we haven't come up with our policy yet, so uh, I'm not going to rule things in or out or propose anything. But I was at the news conference yesterday where Chris Hipkins was asked about this, and I have to say it wasn't inspiring about, A, his own belief about what he thinks should happen – or any sort of hint that Labour might have something in their manifesto which mm. reflects this giant hole or tries to block this giant hole that's in our tax system.
1: Max, may I, may I ask you a question about this? Because it's Peter here from, and I'm, I happen to be in Oslo at the moment. So I thought I would um, uh, take a little look at, at Norwegian tax rates because, you know, Bernard and I were talking as, before you came in about this sort of critical problem that you have in a lot of Anglo Saxon places that they want. Scandinavian levels of public services, but they want American levels of taxation. And it was quite interesting just now. I looked and I always think of it being a very high taxation place, but the basic rate of taxation on everything, personal taxes on everything, including capital gains is 22%, which is lower than the New Zealand income tax rate. But they then have a graduated bracket tax as income goes up, which goes from Four percent at the at the at the bottom end to seventeen and a half percent at the top end. where you are getting up into the two million dollar incomes and getting into the Rod Duke territory, the criminal territory, the non criminal territory? Of course, when Max, when you're talking about talking to two of New Zealand's richest men, we're here. But you oh, know, yeah, it, right. it's <laughs> very interesting that we think you know. So effectively, an, an average income earner in Norway has a, uh, an income tax of around thirty five point five percent, but that is. Uh, taxed on everything, capital gains, everything everything that they consume, plus they have a 25% VAT or GST tax. And don't get me started on the alcohol, separate alcohol taxes, which are levied for very different reasons. But, you know, it, 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 it's about equity, isn't it, in New Zealand, Max, that we, that we like to think that we're a, a somewhat equitable society. But, in fact, the you know the New Zealand Gini coefficient is huge, isn't it?
3: Yes. And, look, I mean, and, and on capital gains, you know, we're a huge outlier. I mean, virtually every other developed country in the world taxes, capital gains, quite often in addition to having taxes on land or property or Mm. inheritances or what have you. Yeah, I mean, I I think there is this sort of this myth that we run a very egalitarian system. And in fact, we don't. You know, we ask a huge amount of lower rate taxpayers, you know, for whom GST takes the biggest chunk out of their incomes proportionally. And that was made really clear in this research on Wednesday. And they pay 10.5% tax on every cent they earn. Whereas, you know, we have people at the upper end of whom we're asking relatively little. But I do, I do think, you know, it's, it's also true that we're stuck in that, that sort of Anglo-Saxon trap of, you know, wanting high quality services, but not wanting to pay the taxes for mm. it, you know, mm. having champagne tastes, but only a beer budget, as people put it. But I think that's also a clue to how, you know, if people are going to campaign on these issues in future, I mean, I, th- I think it's hard right now because Labour's sort of very scarred by the last attempt to bring in a capital gains tax. They haven't been obviously advocating for it, you know, really consistently for a long time. Uh, there isn't the civil society sort of backing behind it. So I think it would take a really concerted campaign. But if it did, what you'd be doing is saying, look at the extra public services we could have. That's the point, of course, because that's yes. the goal. I mean, yes. nobody wants tax for it and it's on its own right you know, here are the things that we could have with it. This is what would be requiring of some of New Zealand's sort of better off citizens. Those are the deeper pockets. Yeah, and that might be a deal that people accept.
0: Is there a chance, though, that, you know, in an attempt to get it through, you do some sort of fancy tax switch? The last time we had significant reform was in 2010, when after a remarkably similar tax working group, which ironically actually proposed went back to John Key with a land tax idea, which he rejected at the time. Uh, I think they came up with a a GST increase for income tax switch, which they presented as distributionally neutral, although we never actually had a chance to check that, whether it was in the end. Uh, Max, what about the idea of a tax switch, which has been bubbling away in the background?
3: Yes, I think that's something that David Parker uh, obviously favours. In his speech on Wednesday, he said, well, you know, if we had a tax switch at one point and then at another point he said, you know, there's lots of ways you can switch things. So it's really clear that he admires the kind of the politics of that. I think the problem is that the, the numbers are difficult. You know, to give sort of people a, a meaningful income tax cut would cost quite a lot of money, you know, because I don't think you buy a lot of political goodwill if people are sort of, I don't know, 10 or $20 a week better off, you know, they have to be something like $40, $50 a week better off. To do that, you know, to do something like making the first $5,000 of income tax free would cost something like $1.8 billion, which is a lot of money. And if you do a capital gains tax the way I think it always is done, where you're only taxing the profits people make when they sell the asset. It takes quite a long time before a capital gains tax actually generates a lot of revenue. So although I think the politics of a tax switch in theory are better, in practice, I'm not actually sure that there's an easy way to implement it.
0: So at the end of the week, after the dust has started to settle, how hopeful are you that we might actually get some reform out of this? Because now there's like no question. We've got a problem. It's enormous. It's enormous. It needs something to tax capital gains or wealth or land or something mm-hmm. to actually change things. But what's your thoughts on whether it'll actually make a difference? Well, I think it'll make
3: a difference in the long term because I think it's changed the terms of the debate. And that fact, you know, the wealthy are paying half the tax rate of the average person. That's just getting into – that's in the consciousness mm. now. And it's just going to be embedded further and further every time it's repeated. In the short term, I mean, obviously there's going to be nothing in the budget. The prime minister made that clear, but you wouldn't expect that anyway. I guess the big question is what does Labour go to the election with? Um, obviously last election, the Greens went with a wealth tax proposal. They might well come back to that. You know, you'd, you'd expect them to be consistent on that. What Labour goes with is hard to predict. My, my instinct is that they won't go to the election with anything like a comprehensive capital gains tax because they're too scarred and they haven't, you know, you'd need years of consistent messaging on it, I think, Mm. before Labour would be confident going to an election with it. I guess they might try to do something to fill the gaps. I mean, it's not obvious to me what that would be, but if there was a way that you could say, look, we just want to shore up the tax system, we want to get a bit more tax out of the top 1%, if you could really corral that because your problems get your problems come at the point where the middle classes think they're really going to be hammered by something. Yeah. And if you can inoculate against that, if you can make it clear that it's just something to try to redress that inequality right at the top end, I think that'd be viable. But honestly, in policy terms, what that would be, I'm not really sure. And so I think Labour will, will will probably try to do what they can around the margins to look like they're addressing the issue, maybe get a little bit more revenue out of that group but I don't think they'll go to the election with anything bold. The question will be then, if they end up in a coalition with the Greens and possibly Te Pate and Mari, you know mm. what concessions might be extracted
1: at that stage. Max, what do, you, what do you think about this Norwegian system of these gradated bracket taxes, where you you have a, a relatively low base rate of tax, 22% on everything, though, but then you have this kind of theoretically equity-based, you know, quite different tax rates on top of that, For people, and may I also ask a a, an additional question, which I know is not entirely your area, but the other side of this is whether we have a growth economy and a growing economy. And I I always wonder what sometimes in New Zealand whether we are uh, quite keen to strangle it with tax uh, and and not in fact promote growth adequately. Not to sound too much like David Seymour,
3: but yeah, I mean, both interesting questions. I think there's a lot of merit in all different kinds of tax system or different sorts of taxes that are. Used across the world. I don't know how far you get though by, you know, holding up another completely different tax system and saying here's something to emulate because, you know, we have to make changes to the New Zealand tax system
1: as it exists. Yeah, um, and I'm just thinking you know, about this principle of equity though because you you, you know you raised this. One of the other things they do in Norway is that anyone can look up uh, anyone else's tax rate and income online. So we don't have to wait for somebody to do a sort of uh, uh, you know so i could I could look up rod duke 's income although I can just look over from my house to his house and see see what his income is is building but um the you know this idea of equity is is something we we i think we might have to pursue this more Bernard about you know whether we are a um, you know pacific socialist paradise or in fact uh, a bunch of greedy little rotters with expensive houses i do
3: i think one of the um I mean, obviously, I think equity
1: in the in the tax
3: system is important. I do think maybe one of the sort of structural problems in this debate is the New Zealand economy's reliance on untaxed capital gains. You know, I think, mm. why is it so hard to get something implemented here, which is just part of the furniture in virtually every other developed country? And I suspect it's got something to do with the fact that, you know, two of the great New Zealand sort of pastimes and obsessions, are farming and owning uh, investment property are heavily reliant on untaxed capital gains.
4: You know, in both cases,
3: often the people engaged in those uh, practices don't make a lot of money on an annual basis. You know, it's surprising how many farmers are not generating that much revenue in the short term. I mean, the actual rental returns on a year-by-year basis on investment property can be quite poor compared to, you know, more sophisticated investments to what people are banking on is the untaxed capital gain at the end of it. And so I wonder, I mean, those effects are present to some extent probably in every economy, but I wonder if ours isn't particularly reliant on those things, and that's part of the reason we're particularly resistant
1: to that kind of tax. Yeah, we're, we're building multi-generational wealth, Max.
0: Uh, yeah, but, <laughs> but we're not taxing it at all. Um, yeah. Apart from not having a capital gains tax, we also don't have any inheritance tax. Max, it's lovely to see you. Thank you very much for coming on the show. It's, it's, uh, it's been a fascinating week for um, geeks like you and me who think about uh, income and tax and wealth and that stuff. It's great to see you. Thank you very much. Thanks, Max.
1: I'll, I'll, I'll go to some other obscure place and lecture you about tax from there as well when I
0: do a quick Google search. Thank you. Okay, it's time to welcome in Nick Goodall from Core Logic, head of research there, who also spends his entire day um, looking at the value of things and uh, what's happening, and, and nothing more valuable than our housing market. Nick, you're one of those people who actually comes up with a number every quarter on on how much the housing market is actually worth. How much is it worth at the moment? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think we, we're at the moment, say about one point seven trillion.
5: I think, is the the value of our housing market in New Zealand. So, yeah, it's up there, certainly much more than any other investment um, capital in New Zealand anyway.
0: Yeah. Putting aside all the capital gain stuff, what's happening in the housing market, do you feel, right now?
5: Yeah, to us, it does feel like the beginning of the end of the downturn, I suppose. That's not to say that the the trough is here quite yet, um, but we don't think it's too far away. And news in the last week or two, including these the expected LVR changes from Reserve Bank, probably reinforced that expectation of that trough getting nearer and nearer. Um, so, yeah, we do we do think it's not too far away now.
0: Yeah, and just looking at those LVR changes, which surprised me at least, uh, the Reserve Bank is proposing from June the 1st that owner-occupiers uh, who are borrowing more than uh, 80% of the value of their home that the speed limit, the share of bank lending going into high LVR lending for owner-occupiers can be increased from 10% to 15%. And then on the investor side, the Reserve Bank has said, uh, previously we've said you need a 40% deposit, you can only borrow up to 60%. Now we're saying the definition for a uh, high LVR loan is 65%. What's your feeling about how those, what appear to be tweaks, how that might translate through into lending appetites and, you know, potential lending growth?
5: Yeah, I think them in themselves um, will only add a little bit of extra demand. Those people that, yep, didn't, couldn't quite get a 40% deposit, sure, that means they can now get in with 35 but it also means their debt's going to be higher mm. and they're having to service higher debt at these high interest rates, which is going to restrict those people too. The Reserve Bank were pretty clear in their in their note um, proposing these changes that they essentially see that there are people out there who are otherwise good borrowers that could get lending from the banks that are being held back by the deposit requirements. And so this should help those people to continue to act in the market. And we know, you know, from sales volumes, we've essentially not seen the market this slow for at least 40 years. And then you compare that to how many properties we've actually got today, how many people, you know, it's probably even worse than that, even longer than that. So we're really coming off an ultra-low level of volumes. This will likely see a little bit of a pickup, but I wouldn't expect this to see demand storm back again. And, and I think that's the other side of this around the downturn being near. That's certainly not to say that on the other side of that, we're expecting an upswing. Affordability is still very stretched, so we expect a, a much more calm markets when we do get on the other side of this downturn to play out for a longer period of time. Uh, And the LVRs then being announced, not only the changes themselves, but I think the fact that that's now feeding into this expectation of the trough being not far away, you know, our our market, our housing market is, is, you know, feeding along like a frenzy. So I think that sort of will bring people back into the market trying to beat the trough. And so in a a funny way, it'll actually bring the trough nearer as well
0: yeah because there's other things going on at the moment we've seen a couple of banks cut their longer term uh, mortgage rates internationally you know we're seeing regular signs not all the time but regular signs that inflation is past the peak and you know we're near the peak for interest rates set by central banks the longer term interest rates have been at least flat if not falling on occasion and then we've got this high net migration, which is coming through. You know, depending on how you, you measure your annualised rate, it could be a hundred thousand <laughs> per year at the moment. Uh, I saw Ben Ed said today it could be one hundred and fifty or one hundred forty thousand. And then we've got a whole bunch of slow, slowing new consenting, new building. Um, you know, is is there the potential here for LVRs to be loosened just as mortgage rates start falling? Just as migration hits warp speed and uh, we stop building new houses and then maybe we have a change of government, which changes the rules on interest um, deductibility and Brightline, which, you know, talk about perfect storms. You know, is there a chance here that we, we do see all the things come together? I think look, there's a scenario that could play
5: out that sees yeah, stronger demand and sees, you know, health price growth stronger than otherwise we would have expected. But I think that that really stretched affordability is going to continue to hold the market back. Mm -hmm. The interest rates, yes, like you said, those longer rates are coming down and there's a chance, you know, even the OCR might come down at the end of the year. So, yeah, the market's expectation for interest rates might start reducing in the future. But I don't think anyone's expecting the OCR, if it does get to its peak of 5.5 next month, let's say, that it's going to come down dramatically. It might get tweaked at the end of the year into next year. But I don't think those interest rates are expected to fall dramatically. And unless they do, I don't think we'd see a a significant lift in demand, which would cause strong price growth. Affordability, when you measure it on things like the proportion of income required to service an 80% LVR mortgage, you know, it's still sitting up over 50%. And that doesn't improve unless interest rates, you know, fall a lot further. Um, and you know prices drop, or, or one of those two things. And while that's happening, I just can't see demand coming, coming back strong enough to see those prices rise at the levels we've
0: seen in the last couple of decades. And you're right, the banks have um, test rates well up towards pretty much double digits at the moment. Just finally, you know, you, you've followed the cycles and you've seen what's happened in election years. How much of a factor do you think in the housing market at the moment is – the election, October the 14th, and how people are seeing that. I mean, obviously, the polls are saying it's neck and neck right now. We don't know for sure which way it's going to go. But, you know, how much of a factor is that for people looking and and wondering what they do?
5: Yeah, I think the number one thing with an election is it it slows down activity. As uncertainty is there, then people don't know what's going to happen. and So they sort of pull back from the market until they see what could happen on the other side. And, and your point earlier that, yep, if we do see a change in government and national leads that government, then there are potential proposed tax changes. I'm still a little bit sceptical that you know tax changes very rarely get reversed out. Mm. And I can't see them campaigning on that one thing alone. There's so many other hot topics
1: like the climate. I can't see them campaigning on paying more tax, that's for sure. Yeah, well, that's
5: right. <laughs> you know, like the climate's going to be top of mind, cost of living as well. And I can't see the national... Party campaigning hard on reversing these tax changes, but I could be wrong on that one. And then, of course, it would take a while to reverse them out anyway. But once they're embedded, it's pretty hard to, to pull these things back. So we'll see on that one. But I think the first thing the election will bring is uncertainty. We'd see slowdown in transactions. So, you know, while we expect a little bit of a lift, maybe that'll be restored a little bit. And then, of course, it will depend on who wins that election and, uh, and what policies fall off the back of that. But in its very simplest terms, yep, national generally are more favourable for property investment labor not so much and so depending on who wins you might see the reaction from the market following
1: that nick can i also say it's excellent shirt action today oh. you know bernard and i are specialists in bold shirts although i've gone rather somber today but you know it's it's you're looking you're looking terrific thank you oh thank you very much certainly got my best on a friday night thank you very much nick cheers thanks guys speaking of looking terrific hi josie how are you
4: hello guys hello
1: I had to look up sororicide in in your story, which I I absolutely know the concept of sister killing, but I I don't think I'd ever seen sororicide in a story. And there was another excellent word in your story, uh, endoscopic endoscopic. endoscopic yeah. glimpses
4: Both of which did not come naturally to me, Peter I have to say, yes It was after, really? yeah. discussions with my very erudite husband Who comes up with words like that And I go, what the hell does that mean? And then <laughs> then I look at and I go, ooh, that's a perfect word Yes, so
1: Is your husband called Roger? <laughs> no. And is he a, is he a thesaurus? <laughs>
4: more, more Richelot than Roche, I think, but yeah, no. yeah. yeah. <laughs> Excuse
0: me, I do
1: the jokes here, thanks very much
0: it's lovely, lovely to see you, um, Josie, in Melbourne. As it turns out, we're doing Oslo, Auckland, Wellington, Dunedin, and and now Melbourne. It's the global yes, podcast.
4: Yes, I just got off the plane. I literally got off the plane to Melbourne, so I've kind of ruined your international uh, global return to globalization.
1: Yeah, it's like a very bad perfume bottle. <laughs>
4: It does, doesn't it? Yeah, either that or that hit from the eighties.
1: Auckland, Auckland, Wellington, Dunedin tour. Yeah, account. yeah. <laughs> um, uh, yeah. Uh,
4: uh, what was it? Uh, uh, Paris, Rome, Berlin, something, something. Everybody talk about mm, pop music. Mm.
0: Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, no. We're we're there. Josie, your column today in the Dominion Post, soon to become the Post, was very good talking about the. Hunger games that are going on within the parties for uh, electorate spots, list spots. You know, it's getting. I mean, we're right at the point where people have to be selected, and the jostling that goes on behind the scenes makes you realise. You know, there's a lot at stake, and there's a lot of um, uh, big egos and um, big plans and dreams that can be dashed. What do you think of of what's going on, firstly in the in the Green Party, where? Elizabeth Kitty is right at the center of quite some storm.
4: Yeah, I mean that's why I chose to start with them because a I think for some people it's quite a shock to see the greens but you know being so nasty to each other. Uh, whereas in my experience Bernard when I worked for the alliance you know, this was who the Greens were. I mean, to be fair, the Alliance was full of people who hated each other, um, but, you know, <laughs> particularly the Greens. In, and, and it was that, that, you know, that the only thing that united them was the fact that they all hated everybody else in the Alliance. So you had the new Labour Party, you had Mana Mutahaki, um, where I was working with Sandra Lee. You had the new Democrats. God, I can't even remember now. Uh, Frank Grover, Glover oh, my God, I've even forgotten. You see, this is the thing. I've got off a plane and had a glass of wine, so don't take anything I say seriously. Maybe that's
0: just a political party thing. Maybe they're all in there tearing each other apart.
4: Well, in my experience of being in Parliament as a staffer and also standing as a candidate um, and failing, was that, yeah, you tend to make better friends on the other side of the political spectrum because you're not competing for the same oxygen, right? Mm. So in Mm. most parties, um, you will find people – even though they, and this is why I wanted to sort of like try and describe that particular political smile that you see um, in the media when parties try and have a show of unity. And um, remember, we saw it with Labor, all, it were multiple changes of leaders, all called David. You know, before Jacinda, before Andrew Little, and and they would come out and they'd stand behind the the new David of the day, and they would all make that smile that you can only make by sucking air through your teeth. You know, and, <laughs> and it was actually a line I got off my colleague. Phil Quinn, who, who you know, just, it was such a perfect way of describing that very false smile. And then I thought, yeah, it's the kind of smile that, you know, hasn't reached your eyes for a couple of decades, you know. And so, yeah, within political parties, MPs and, and people competing for the same jobs, this, you know, they're competing for list rankings, generally don't like each other. And it's not particularly ideological. I think that's the other thing that people think with all the leadership battles in the Labour Party in the past and then National after that, you think these are factional debates driven with great principled beliefs and either you are for redistribution of wealth or you're for... No, it's just I hate that person
1: and I've hated them since I was at school. Yeah, or they weren't <laughs> no. part
4: of my group. So I remember, Peter, when I stood for Labour, and, and I don't talk about it as much because I know in the Labour Party don't want to be associated with me, um, but I, I stood for Labour and... and um, you know, in and, and a safe seat and, and didn't get it. Chris Farfoy got the nomination. Then I was told that I would have a safe place on the list. So you kind of go, oh, great, I'll have a safe place on the list. And then I remember it was actually Chippy came up to me and he said, oh, actually, we've decided that we're all going to stick together, our little 2008 group, and we're not going to put anyone above us. So you'll actually be a bit lower. And so you go, that's nothing to do with um, ideology or even, you know, factions like you see in the Australian Labour Party, where you might have a kind of centre-right faction in the Labour Party versus another, all to do with the fact that we all came in at the same time and we're mates, so we'll stick together and so on. And you see that in every political party and in the Greens as well, right? I mean, there is a split between those who want a more kind of left wing social focus and those that want to focus primarily on climate change, environmental issues, and so on. So there is a logistical. Is, is it
1: because there's some of them would actually quite like to be elected?
4: <laughs> well, um no. You see, that's the other thing, Peter. Is that, I, that many of them would rather be martyrs than be elected. You know, it's better to go down Absolutely. in a in a flame of of martyrdom than to be elected and have to compromise. Which is why I, I wrote a column a while ago about James Shaw. Remember, they tried to roll him, saying that you know it, that they don't like that he wears a suit. And they don't like the way he looks, probably because he doesn't mm. look quite like a you know radical activist. But he's actually more radical than them because he's. Trying to get it voted in, get into power, actually, yeah. get around mm. the cabinet table or 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 a cabinet adjacent, um, and you know bring in some legislation. And you'd have to say, looking at the Labor government, the piece of legislation that has had the biggest impact is the um, zero carbon emissions uh, um, legislation, which he champions. So, um, yeah,
0: it is interesting. This whole you know the personal aspect of uh, politics, and and also judgment about people and how important that is. Uh, I'm curious, we've seen Christopher Luxon's leadership um, perhaps struggle with this issue of candidate selection, with a bunch of candidates who, shock horror, we discover after the fact they've been appointed as candidates, uh, may have had some, some issues. What do you make of Christopher Luxon's performance here, and in particular this you mentioned in your column that the idea that um, politicians have to be have to at least feel authentic. I wonder if Christopher Luxon is is quite there yet.
4: That was a really interesting piece of research. It was a book, you know, written post the Trump uh, twenty sixteen election, where they they had analysed. Well, how is it that? Even though the evidence was completely black and white that Trump was lying about X, Y, and Z Mm -hmm. um, and Hillary was telling the truth. Um, Why is it that that didn't get cut through? You know, so many theories about that. And one of the, you know, and this I think is the most convincing theory that. That he didn't pretend he wasn't lying, so his lying mm. was authentic. <laughs> whereas Hillary's <laughs> truth telling, it's like I know. I yeah. where you go from here politically, I don't know. But but Hillary's truth telling felt inauthentic, and and so this, you know, I think it's about I mean, what what you do about that is really tough. But I do think the authenticity thing matters, and and that perhaps. Perhaps Luxon, you know, rather than trying to run away from his rather, you know, conservative, perhaps rather dull persona, maybe embrace it. I mean, they did a, 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 I don't remember, Mm -hmm. they did a sort of, you know, let's meet, christopher luxon and his family and they they took a camera into his house it's all about trying to let's get to know christopher luxon and the thing that stood out to me was in his garage he had a drawer where he'd labeled everything in the drawer so he was a labeler <laughs> which you kind of go oh my god you're one of those people you know
0: <laughs> so the, this is the sort of don brash washing his um undies in the oh, in the sink in the, in the hotel
4: yeah this is not horrible thing right to be a labeler you can't think, no. okay i actually i'm okay about a guy running the country who labels things and knows where everything is maybe that's a good thing so don't maybe don't run away from from what do you, you mean know. do you,
1: are we allowed to have people with um, alphabetized spice drawers because if so i'm in there ah uh, you're in peter that's, you're too, in. Far.
4: that's too far yeah, peter.
1: yeah. <laughs> it's like the old george burns joke that if you can if you can fake fake authenticity you're in
4: yes yeah. and actually i mean I would like – there are a few words I'd like banned in the political lexicon at the moment. One is sustainability and the other is authenticity. But, you know, here we are talking about it because it's important. But but the, the one yeah. thing – the final thing I'd say about that um, is that I read this wonderful Marina Hyde column. She writes to The Guardian. She's very funny and witty. And, I, you know, she I is. sort of – try and kind of uh, emulate her sometimes, but she, she wrote a line about Keir Starmer, the Labour leader in the UK, obviously, and she said, um, you know, Rishi Sunak's struggling and, you know, who knows how he'll go, but he's helped by the fact that, it wasn't quite these words, but helped by the fact that Keir Starmer looks like uh, when he opens his mouth, the next words are going to be, and have you thought about what kind of wood you'd like with the casket? So that's why I was thinking about that and thinking, and Krishna Luxon does look like the next words coming out of his mouth are going to be, I'm so excited about the corporate synergy workshop tomorrow,
1: you know. Would you like another vinyl settee?
0: Yeah, yeah. yeah. This is the thing about Chris Hipkins has embraced his, you know, I'm having a mince pie for my birthday and I come from Upper Hutt. And that fantastic picture on the day in which, you know, Labour was deciding who was going to replace Jacinda Ardern, of him in a hoodie with the wraparound Upper hut glasses saying, oh, I don't know what's going to happen. I, You know, it's not a big deal. Amazing yeah. political – I mean, you'd have to think it was planned in some way, but beautiful. And it is authentic. You know, that that is that – is, he does cycle to work from Upper hut and he doesn't – Come across as a sort of a, you know, Wellington latte sipping, you know, um, policy wonk. Um, he does feel like a, uh, upper hut outer suburbs boy because he looks so young. <laughs> young about from anything else.
4: That's so interesting, but because I did a um, interview with the BBC actually after that, and they were asking because they were perplexed about how New Zealanders could go from, you know, someone like Jacinda, international glamorous front page of Vogue, to someone like Chris Hipkins, and um, y- you know, it was sort of try- trying to explain to them. And in fact, there was a, a who's going article. to be a
1: front page of Holden Owner magazine. Yeah,
4: yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but he, he gets on. We get on well with my cousins. Um, but. He, he you know, it was this idea that, and Camilla Long, who writes for the Times, she wrote about Jacinda um, last week, and she called her slightly scathingly a turbo martyred showboater. You know, and so mean, <laughs> funny, but mean. But what? But I think yeah. what what was what that captures is the fact that New Zealanders were going. You know. Overseas, they were perplexed as to how we could suddenly go from this one to the other. But actually, we were looking at Chris Hipkins and going, "He looks a bit like us, you know. He's got he he's got duty dog glasses, cheap as hell, you know, the kind of glasses you buy at the garage when you're filling up with petrol. Like these were not trendy at all, and a, and a dusty old baseball cap, you know, with mitre ten on it or something like that. So it was the idea that he's never going to be on the front page of Vogue. And suddenly, we were quite liking the idea that there, there was you know, mm. a leader. Of
0: life life. It was interesting this week. He again forced this, you know, bread and butter line, no frills budget and talked about going to pack and save. I mean, this is the ultimate mm. arbiter of class in New Zealand. Do you shop at pack and save or new world? Yeah. And i got a feeling Christopher Luxon is a new world sort of guy. Josie, thank you very much for, for coming onto our show. It's lovely to see you. I hope you're all, all well. And, um, uh, congratulations on having the column in the last edition of the Dominion Post and looking forward to your columns in the post.
4: Can I say, Bernard, one thing about that column? Because usually I was thinking, right, I'm going to write something funny because I, I just want to sort of experiment with writing funny. But the way I ended, I, I wouldn't want to just leave it as a sort of witty, you know, nasty mm. dig at all the political parties. And ending with, and I don't even know Dave Latelli, but the way he spoke about politics, I thought, wow, that's something I could really believe in and people can believe in, which is, you know, um, uh, someone who who joins a party you know to make their community better off not somebody else's you know he's from that community and he said something mm. like you know i want to i want to know if being in parliament will help me and my community my family and my community group and that's just you know just really basic that's what politics is about you know so trying to end mm-hmm. on a hopeful note not being too simple.
0: Yeah yeah no <laughs> i mean there are many well meaning um hard working People who do amazing things, often in, in politics, and uh,
4: authentic,
0: yeah, yeah, and um, genuine, real, yeah. be real. No, no, no why can't we just you're be right, us? It, it, Yeah, no, <laughs> no, it is, it is, it can, it can be good. Thank you very much, all right, Josie. guys,
4: Thank you, Pe- lovely to talk to you.
0: Cheers. And Peter, you have to finish us off. A well, I have a, um, I could
1: finish us off in all sorts of ways. Let's not use that expression actually, because that's a bit <laughs> rude. But uh, a skateboarding dog. But Bernard, I thought I'd give you a little flavour of Norway first, actually. So mm, two things. One, I've been apart from my coffee, I've been delivered an amazing Norway Norwegian delicacy, which is brown cheese, which <gasps> you often have while skiing, which is incredible it's brown because it's incredibly sweet. It's very it's it's um it's kind of like Chesdale, but brown and uh, I mean it, well, Norwegians will now kill me, but it's You're it's it's well. cheese you often eat. <laughs> It's you often eat before you go skiing, so that you've got a real baseline of, of 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 protein, and it's um, and you use you use one of those little cheese tools to pull it back. But of course, most Norwegians have at least four of those cheese things because they know just by looking at them which one is the appropriate one for the brown trees and which one is the appropriate one for the other cheeses. The other thing, I coming back last night after dinner, I discovered a phenomenon which is. Um, I've seen in Sweden, but not here, which is large numbers of teenagers in their last year of school, their last couple of weeks of school, but weirdly before their exams, travel around the city in um, disco buses, towing generators that are powering the most extraordinary um, (laughs) deafening roar of disco music. And they're all driving around in these um, blackout windowed buses, dancing, carrying on and doing appalling things and going up to the nearby uh, ski jump place and um, dancing in the under the under the spring stars but then they have to wow. go and do their exams so i think they've got that slightly arse about face as we say uh, in new zealand
0: were you tempted to join them i uh,
1: know not at all it was actually it looked my uh, being trapped in a blacked out bus would look pretty bloody <laughs> horrible actually but it was pretty funny <laughs> seeing them crawl through the wealthy suburbs with generators going and disco music blaring but the the skateboarding dog is is is, is a germanic one which is uh a tenant in a building lost a case where they were suing uh, they were being sued for refusing to pay their rent because the landlord was sunbathing naked in the courtyard beneath their office. Uh, and the judge pointed out that in order to see the landlord, they would have had to lean a long way out the window. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: we'll have some sort of uh, submarine-like, oh, yeah. you no, know, right. periscope yeah, that's right. thing. That's right,
1: yeah, yeah periscope. A, 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 naked, a naked landlord periscope, but yeah. All right, with that, I will uh, sign off from Oslo have my brown cheese and go and have another
0: cappuccino. Don't lean out the window, Peter. Wonderful to see you. Thank you very much. Have a safe trip. And uh, we will... um... And thank you,
1: everybody, for being there and for Simon for making us sound better than we are, as usual. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. No, we're really um, pleased that Simon's able to take the hour's audio that we've just um, gone through and turn it into a, a fantastically produced thing if you happen to miss... This episode on uh, YouTube Live.
1: Who would who would think of missing it on YouTube Live, Bernard really? Exactly. Who would think yeah. of
0: that? Yeah. No, that's right. Thank you very much, everyone. That has been the Hoon for the week ending Friday, the twenty eighth of April. I'm Bernard Hickey, and with you from Oslo was Peter Bale. Good See bye. you all later. Thank you. anō.
1: See you from Spain next
0: week. Bernard. Ah, good. Oh, excellent.